Hi, my name's Lynn Sanchez, and I'd like to talk to you today about the Reader's Membership Drive. I'm the Reader's Creative Services Director. That means I coordinate all the different creative people who contribute to the Reader. Here at the Reader, we're always trying to answer one question. What's going on in Omaha? For 27 years, you've been able to grab a copy of the Reader or look at our website and find out who's playing, what's showing, Where's that new restaurant you need to try? Our news coverage amplifies underreported stories and takes a deeper dive into the news from a perspective you don't always hear. People might not realize our full-time staff is less than 10 people. Most of what's in the paper and online is created by freelancers, writers, columnists, reviewers, editors, photographers, interns, graphic designers, multimedia producers. For example, 20 different freelancers had work in our most recent issue. The majority of the people I work with also have families, other gigs, or full-time jobs. And believe me, no one's getting rich from doing this. Our freelancers have to genuinely love what they do and be dedicated to the reader's mission or they wouldn't do it. Your support helps us deepen the talent pool and keep giving creative people a place to work and share useful information and entertainment with the community at large. Please become a member today. To Reader Radio. My name is Chris Bowling. Today we have an episode for you that I'm really excited about. It's actually an interview with me and our uh, publisher and editor, John Heaston. Uh, John was one of the people who co-founded The Reader back in 1994, and he's still a part of it to this day. Um, you know, John's story, it really crisscrosses from, you know, around the country, I mean, literally, and then, you know, from being in the music scene to sort of falling into journalism to sort of getting to where he's at today with it. And, you know, it's just a really fascinating uh, snapshot into some, you know, uh, oral history about Omaha and about like the importance of journalism. And I just found it overall really fascinating. And, you know, I really hope you do too. Hopefully you heard the plug in the beginning, but if you want to become a member of The Reader, you can do that by going online to thereader.com. Uh, you know, for 28 years, we've been totally free, and now we're starting this new thing where we're, you know, asking for your guys' support, but also your guys' input into how we do the jobs that we do. So we'd really appreciate that support. If you ever want to do that, it's on thereader.com. But that being said, um, let's just get into this episode. All right, so today I'm sitting with John Heaston, the publisher, editor, co-founder. Any other titles that I should include about the reader and you? <laughs> uh, cook and bottle washer. Cook, okay, all right. Uh, and we are going to talk a little bit today about the history 
of the reader. So for anyone that doesn't know, John has been involved with it from the very beginning and he's got a lot of stories to tell and lots of, uh, you know, things to go over and things that I definitely don't know. And I bet a lot of readers and listeners don't know as well. So only a few that are really podcast worthy, but we'll do okay. our best. All right. Well, why don't we start out? Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Are you from Omaha? Do you come from a long line of journalists and truth finders? Um, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, no and no. Um, so I grew up an army brat. Um, my dad was active army for, I think, 21 years. So um, born in Germany. Uh, he taught at West Point, so spent three years there. Um, I went to kindergarten with Coach K's daughter. He was the basketball coach at West Point at the time. Um, from there, uh, Anchorage, Alaska, Fort Riley, Kansas, um, and then my first taste of civilian life living in a regular residential neighborhood was in Northern Virginia, Springfield, Virginia, and um, he retired uh, towards the end of my sophomore year, and we moved to Omaha, um, where he was from. He comes from a... a Large Catholic family in Omaha, Our Lady of Lords, uh, and uh, a big Creighton family. My grandfather was an accounting professor at Creighton for 30 years. And um, all my great aunts and uncles, and pretty much all my dad, my aunts and uncles, all went to school there, uh, as well as Creighton Prep. So as a junior, I went to school, entered, uh, came to Omaha, started at uh, Creighton Prep, uh, which is something I had kind of always heard about growing up with had the t-shirts you know that kind of mm -hmm. thing when we came back to omaha for holidays uh we'd come back for the softball tournaments and you know the alumni tournaments um and um really well, let me stop you real quick yeah. so like what kind of like a kid were you like growing up like were you like what sort of stuff were you into like what did you want to be when you grew up like what are some some of those sorts of things from like your childhood oh i think as a kid i thought i'd be an archaeologist like indiana jones hey, we have no time if you still want the ark it has been loaded onto a truck for cairo raiders of the lost ark i was really interested in his film you know that was kind of one of my favorite subjects um, and you get a little kind of travel wanderlust uh, when you move every three years. Um, when you move every three years, you also learn um, pretty quickly how to adapt to new environments, um, how to try and, you know, make new friends. Um, I've had various stints as um, the very serious student, but also the class clown you know uh trying to earn that social approval and acceptance from you know new classmates um i don't know that i had much of a big plan other than my dad was an attorney he was a jag officer you know maybe i'd be a lawyer my mom um uh got her cpa when i was uh, i think a freshman in high school um and so she was working part-time uh, doing accounting work but if I followed the kind of traditional line, I would have had a four-year ROTC scholarship. Maybe a West Point uh, would have been the big dream, you know, uh, appointment. Uh, maybe a career military service or at least, you know, somewhere a law degree and doing law stuff. And so um, 
that all kind of went sideways for me my freshman year. One of the things I think that was different for me coming in as a junior was Omaha was brand new to me. And so were all of the connections and the old school family stuff. And while a lot of my friends and peers were, you know, extremely sick of that kind of a thing, you know, what parish are you from? Oh, I know your aunt and uncle. Oh, I went to school, you know, with your grandparents, that kind of stuff. I got a real kick out of it because I never grew up with any of those kinds of things. All that said, I was never going to live in Omaha. No way, no chance. I was yeah. going to go to, you know, bigger pastures. And so um, uh, was uh, accepted uh, to Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Um, spent a year down there. Had a really fun time, which no one wanted to pay for. Yeah, was it a full year? I did what? complete a full year. Okay. <laughs> I thought I heard it was a semester. Nope, nope, okay, nope. Right, it was a full right. year. It was two semesters. And um, came back and, uh, you know, the, was living with my parents, and they were willing to help me go to school at Creighton or UNO, but I was never going to live in Omaha. So I followed a buddy out to Vail, Colorado, and did a season as a, you know, a ski tech, um, doing room service at nights and ski tech during the day, and, of course, getting on the slopes as much as I could. And uh, realized I should um, probably get back into school and do something. So started doing that and was um, getting ready to transfer to Fairfield University in Connecticut, which was the Jesuit college there, uh, which was close to New York City. Um, and it was just kind of, you know, big apple, bright lights, big city. Yeah. Um, there didn't seem like there was a lot to do in Omaha at the time. Um, there was kind of this in-between of this kind of really strong um, local music scene that was, you know, potentially a lot of cover bands or kind of the traditional kind of, um, you know, this would have been late 70s, early 80s. There was a lot of live music in Omaha at that time. But when I came around in the late 80s, early 90s, it was really at that point that alternative music kind of, you know, had taken off. and. My bands in high school were, you know, R.E.M. and The Cure, The Smiths, um, The Replacements. And now until the Pops, The Smiths, who are number 10, they're into the 10, and heaven knows I'm miserable now. So there, you know, those were never bands you could hear on the radio. The radio was mostly kind of the, you know, uh, big hair, hard rock bands. Um, and uh, so just kind of almost out of we have nothing to do and nowhere to go, um, a friend, a guy by the name of Tracy Ward, who was a year ahead of me from Westside, who was also in Omaha. This is when you're, uh, you've left Vail. So, so I've left Vail. In. So now I'm a, a, a sophomore at UNO. So I would have been 90, 91 got with me and said, hey, we know all these local bands, and there were all these local bands, you know, popping up. This is when 311 first started. Uh, they were the same age as I was from Westside, so knew um, a couple of them fairly well um, and had a lot of mutual friends there. There were the early um, signs of the Saddle Creek uh, scene, um, Frontier Trust, Pioneer Disaster, um, a lot of high school bands were around at that time. And so because they didn't have a place to play and we didn't feel like we had a place to go, we started renting um, halls. And we did our first show at the FOE Hall on 
Fifth and Douglas. And um, I think it was three bands, and then you know we were presenting, and we we split the door four ways equally. And so did an, a few shows like that, kind of knocking around, you know, different East Side uh, venues. Um, and I called to rent Sokol Hall on 13th and Martha, Sokol Auditorium, for a New Year's Eve show on 1990. And the guy who answered the phone uh, was a board member, a guy by the name of Ray. And if I recall correctly, his last name was Lansky. And I called and said, hey, I'm interested in renting uh, Sokol for New Year's Eve. And he said, well, um, we think we're selling the hall and that's going to be our final event for our membership. Now, my family, my grandma grew up on 12th and Martha in a house that my great-great-grandfather and his brothers built as a wedding gift for his son-in-law and daughter, my great-grandfather. And uh, so I felt like, you know, I had, you know, that was kind of like my my old family neighborhood of sorts. And you just did not have any other venues like Sokol, his 70-foot stage. The um, balcony seating, the proscenium, um, you know, could hold 2,000 people. And it was also the gym where um, a, an Olympic gold and silver medalist had trained, um, Jim Hartung and Phil Cahoy, you know, uh, national champions in gymnastics. Winners of the gold medals and Olympic champions, Hartung. And I'd heard some rumblings that maybe McDonald's was going to buy it and put a McDonald's catty corner to the Burger King there. And so he said, no, we're done, we're closing, it's over. And I was kind of like, you can't close, you know, there's no other venues like you and, you know, you're an institution and to me, it was really kind of a part of Omaha history. And Ray said, um, well, uh, you should come down to our next meeting. I showed up at that meeting and um, met Ray, and he introduced me to some of the old board members. And I was asking about why they were closing and found out the reason they were closing was because of a fire inspection and that the person who had conducted the fire inspection was actually a member of Sokol. Uh, and was there and had been somewhat vocal over the last few years about them closing. And what was going on there was typical of a lot of these types of uh, associations in that they really hit their peak with that World War II generation. But as their kids, that baby boom generation, moved out to the suburbs, had other interests, you know, they were kind of losing their membership and the membership was aging. And so, um, but these board members, you know, they didn't really trust this inspection. And so they egged me on uh, to go take a look at it. And I said, okay, I will. And you're As, like, you're like, what, 20 years old? 19. Or, okay, 19 years old. I'm 19 <laughs> at the time. So uh, I took two steps. I set up a meeting um, with uh, former U.S. Senator Roman Ruska who essentially was kind of the godfather of the Czech community, you know, was the kind of most established member, you know, um, had achieved the rank of U.S. Senator, of course, later, you know, has a federal courthouse named after him in downtown Omaha, was credited with starting the war on drugs, as a side note. Um, and so I went to go see Senator Ruska, and then I said, um, 
put on my tie, had on a jacket, corner office at Kutek Rock downtown, same office they have today. I said, Senator Ruska, you know, I think something's up with this. This thing needs to be looked at. And basically what, what had been clear to me from that meeting with the older board members was um, the member who had done the inspection was a fire marshal. Um, and he went out and got one quote on what it would cost to meet his inspection. And that came to $1.4 million on a building that was maybe worth a couple of hundred thousand back then. And so it just didn't seem right. And in my, you know, the ignorance of youth, I thought that there was a law that required three bids on any job. Um, that's a best practice, not a law. And yeah, but it's like crazy you would even think that because I don't think many like 19 year olds are thinking about like policies and like laws. Well, that might be the lawyer, you know, dad and mom. Well, accountant, yeah. Right. Any, <laughs> so anyway, I anyway. That up. So I go to Senator Rusk and I say, Senator Rusk, I think we need to look at this thing. There's only been one uh, bid on it. And he cuts me short and he says, young man, do you have a million dollars? And I said, no, sir. So I don't think you can help us. Thanks for coming to see me. And, you know, pretty much ushered me out. And I just left just kind of crushed. You know, I just thought this was going to be my moment. You know, I was going to appeal to this guy and he was going to say, I didn't know this or I hadn't been yeah. paying attention. Let's dig into this. However, I left his office and my second meeting was at the um, um, headquarters for the Omaha Fire Department. So one of my best friends in high school, his dad was a captain in the fire department. And when I learned about this fire inspection, I called him. And he told me to go and talk to the um, head marshal who oversaw all the fire, the fire inspectors. Um, and so I'd arranged a follow up, you know, a second, a meeting with him right after my meeting with Senator Ruska. So I walked down to the downtown fire department. The receptionist at the headquarters there was actually good friends with my aunt. So I saw Mary and said hi to Mary. And Fred Wolf um, takes me out of his office. And we go across the hall into an office that's shared by all the fire inspectors. And I ran into Fred Wolf many years later, probably 12 years later, in Bend, Oregon at a wedding. And he doesn't remember this part of the story, but I'll never forget it. He pulls me into this office, and this picture from the front page of the World Herald is stuck up against an office divider. And it's a picture of the fire marshal's parents. And somebody had drawn a balloon coming out of the mom's mouth and had written in, my dear, dear son broke my heart, like it was the office joke. And I just saw this and I just got so, you know, almost seeing red. I didn't know what I was gonna do, but my plan was is I wanted to see that fire inspection and I was gonna go through it line by line and just look for anything I could find. And Fred Wolf, to his everlasting credit, says, John, the person who inspected that inspected it to close it. You need a new inspection. And I was like, okay, how does that happen? And he goes, well, you just get with the board and we'll schedule a new one. So I go back to the board and I say, hey, they'll do a new fire inspection. And so they arrange it. I actually came down for that fire inspection. It was the cutest thing. That Fire inspectors were there and these older, you know, board members were there telling stories of the day and, you know, how they met their spouse at the, at the um, polka dance. And, you know, he first kissed me over here in this corner and we've been together ever since. And 
Um, essentially, the fire inspection that had been done was for a new building, not for a building built in, I believe, 1919 or 1929 when it was completed. Um, they had buildings on there before. And um, it really just needed uh, some lit exit signs and some panic bars. And so it ended up costing $1,800. And so it just kind of opened my mind to um, not everything you see as being reported might be the whole truth. Never second guessed it. Let me go back. After I went to that first board meeting and they told me this, I did what I thought was my duty for God and country and I called the World Herald Metro desk. And I said, you gotta do a story about this. Sokol is closing and it's because of a fire inspection by a member who'd been very vocal about them closing and he went out and got one inspection. And so the front page of the World Herald, October 9th, 1990 was Sokol Hall in quotes, checking C-Z-E-C-H-I-N-G, out. And they had a picture of the fire marshal's parents who ran a bakery in uh, Omaha for years um, and were well-known, you know, in, in the larger community as, as a Czech bakery. Um, and the whole gist of the story was, what a great time we've had, but it's over. Nothing about their son being the fire marshal that did the inspection and went out and got this quote. Second paragraph from the back, some stranger showed up at the meeting offering assistance. And, you know, that was me. <laughs> um, so I was completely, you know, at that point, just, you know, so disappointed. And um, that's when I decided to take the next steps. Yeah. Okay. So you've told me this story before. And I remember my first reaction when hearing it was like, oh, my God. Because I know, like, now you're, like, the editor of The Reader. You own an alternative newspaper that's supposed to, like report what's not being reported so my first question was like oh my god and so then when did you write the story about that and your answer is <laughs> i haven't written the story i've been waiting for chris to okay, do a podcast yeah. well but so take me so like for i think if this was like a movie and they had to like cut it up make it a little fictional you would be like down in the basement of the Sokol with your own at home printing press making news like flyers never, about this. never so, thought about journalism so did this event though like like what take us from like that event to like starting like actually working in newspapers so what happened after that is i just started telling my story to anybody that would listen i said you know we knew a lot of people were you know there was this you know quite a group kind of running around omaha and i was telling people hey look at the you know here's my story this is what happened i can't believe it and I ran into Ken Guthrie and Jamie Welch. I want to say it was at Fernando's on 74th and Pacific for like, you know, Penny Margarita night or something like that. And I told them this story and they said, we should uh, talk to um, some of the local college newspaper people. And so they introduced me to um, Barry Bedlin and Sue Ling Toomer, who were the... Barry was the editor, and Sue Ling, I think, was like the assistant or the managing editor at the Craytonian. And um, they said, sure, I think we can do a paper. We've got all the pieces here. At least we can, you know, produce it if you can figure out how to sell it and print it. 
And so the journalism lab is named after Father uh, Don Dahl. And as the story goes, they checked with Father Dahl, and Father Dahl said, sure, it's about time something really constructive happened in that lab. And so we would, um, so they said they could do it. I started calling around to printers, figured out what it would cost to print. We started a nonprofit um, corporation called Sound Publishing. We named this Sound News and Arts. It was a vibratory disturbance echoing through our community. Uh, you know, has kind of this, you know, statement on the front end about um, uh, finding those stories that aren't being told and giving voice to those that don't have a voice. Um, and we did a number of uh, kind of open sessions, uh, promoted it on Creighton and UNO's campus. And out of that came up with the core creative team. Um, there's a whole lot of names, to, you know, that can be mentioned in that. Um, one person that stood out and did, you know, as much as anybody was a guy by the name of Ed Stastny. Ed um, was a very early pioneer in electronic art and internet art. Um, started a thing called CITO, S-I-T-O, and I can't remember what those letters stand for. But you could actually get sound news and arts through Gopher, which was a precursor to the open web. Imagine a world for an information It was a bulletin board run out of the University of Minnesota, Gopher. Oh. And... Um, <laughs> It uh, uh, was a lot of down with the man, you know, editorial and some um, light news coverage. The other person who did, you know, more than anybody was Ken Guthrie. Um, who still, who still designs, the paper, designs today. the paper today. Ken's dad was in the, was a former editor at the Sun newspapers and I was very familiar with newspaper production at that point. That, um, was working at Creighton and had access to those tools at home. So when we weren't in the Creighton Journalism Lab, we were in um, at Ken's parents' house in his dad's office. Uh, they eventually got PageMaker on the computers at UNO. And we That's, would, yeah, PageMaker. We would I know use that. the UNO um, uh, computer labs. And then... Um, uh, kind of towards the end of it, I found a Macintosh SE and a laser printer. Um, but we would print them out with the laser printer and then you would paste them up on um, these paste-up sheets that were the size of the paper. Um, so this is well before kind of the PDF adventure. Mm -hmm. um, and you would have this massive box, you know, that was, you know, three feet by two feet, roughly, something like that, maybe even a little bit bigger. Um, and you had a hot wax and you had a light table and you, you know, kind of assemble these pieces. It was a revolution in publishing. Prior to that, you know, this was just past the days of typesetting where you're like working with lead and organizing it into trays. And, yeah. you know, this was using a laser printer to put to wax paper onto a layout grid that they could take a photo of a giant negative of and they would use that to create the imprint on the rollers oh really and so wow. would not have been possible to do a paper you know without that kind of technology mm -hmm. for what we had right? right like for a bunch of students from UNO and Creighton starting out and doing yeah it. um I mean it sounds like it's almost like in the nature of like the time it was like a DIY zine 
Well, I think it, it was a little bigger. I mean, the thing about newsprint is, I mean, we could start with, you know, I think we started with the run of five or 6,000, you know, really? which you don't get in zines. And on a newsprint, you know, you don't want to do less than 3,000. It's yeah. not even worth turning on the press, you know, yeah. for something like that. And, and how old are you at this point? Are you like 20, 21? So after a lot of talking, we started in 92. Oh, okay. 92 and... was our first issue. So and in the you... second issue, we had a very artistic photo. Um, I'll, I'll never. We printed in Red Oak, Iowa, um, and Eka Pond, brilliant photographer and great dentist here in Omaha, who was taking all these great avant-garde photos, and he was a student at Creighton, and so um, we had some photo spreads from him that um, apparently the pressman in Red Oak liked enough to tape to the side of the press. Um, and so, you know, nobody had seen anything like what we were doing. Um, and well, you guys even, didn't you have like an email where people could email you at? Or was that later? That was probably later. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of uh, the Cog Factory. If anyone doesn't know what the Cog Factory is, it was essentially like a concrete, you know, like place like on Leavenworth Street by where the uh, St. Vincent de Paul is that was like the cool like DIY like venue where that kind of helped put Omaha on the map, right? Yeah. Is that an accurate yeah. characterization? Yeah, they did a lot of touring, um, would take on a lot of touring acts and then also the local acts. Yeah. And so, you know, I had some good friends, the Cardells, they did a lot of the concrete in there and cleaned it up. I took a shift running the jackhammer because Rob was putting in his own plumbing for the bathrooms, mm. which was and probably very licensed at the time. <laughs> yeah. And then I was the one that worked with uh, St. Vincent de Paul, the great-grandfather um, who had the house on 12th, was a founder at St. Vincent de Paul. Um, and so through my family, you know, that knew some people over there and, and through school knew the Circos that owned the building where St. Vincent de Paul was. And I uh, was able to get Talk Circo into giving us permission to allow parking mm. in their lot after hours, which is how the Cog Factory got its occupancy certificate mm -hmm. and could finally, you know, open for shows. Yes. Yeah. So I'm... it was Cog Factory and then Sokol Underground. And so I, I was working, going to school, working full time. Um, and I was a weekday associate in a group home taking care of mentally disabled or developmentally disabled adults. And wait, and you're also doing the sound at this point? Or is this sound. That's, and I worked there into the first two years of the reader. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at with like the bringing up the cog factory and all that is that it seems like I guess what I'm curious about is what people's reaction to like what you guys were doing was. I mean, was it just like, oh, hey, there's like this cool thing that's happening. But it seems like I mean, that time was I I feel like for me, when I look back at it um, and I read about it, it's very characterized by like communities sort of awakening and realizing you can build your own spaces. You don't have to do like exactly what your parents did or things like that. And maybe every generation feels that way, but I feel like the whole DIY culture was, so I'm just kind of curious what people's reaction to like, did it feel like, Oh my God, finally there's a need being filled or it was just like, met with like whatever it may be your bias but i don't know yeah i mean i think we were 20 somethings writing to 20 somethings right so people around that age you know could find a, a paper that uh talked about uh you know live music right at that point 
the World Herald, the Daily Paper, most of the culture was the fine arts, right? It was the symphony or the community playhouse or the um, kind of the, you know, standard bearers of a metropolitan um, culture scene, you know, historically. And, and they didn't cover any of this stuff, right? So, you know, it was, um, you know, for us an opportunity to, um, you know, have those voices. And I mean, and it was still a very, you know, privileged white college kid kind of voice. I don't want to, you know, we got to kind of call it for what it is these days. Um, but yeah, there hadn't really been anything like that. And, you know, prior to actually deciding to start the paper <clears throat> and thinking I needed to do a paper, you know, that re revelation actually came to me in Richfield, Ohio at the Dover campgrounds when I was at a Grateful Dead show. So in the after hours of that, when you're just hanging out in this campground with all these people, I met these guys from Minneapolis. I think they were telling, they, they gave me a paper that they had there called the Zinger. I think that's the moment actually that I was like, oh, there's like underground newspapers and there's other newspapers. And I think I came back to Omaha at that point and there were two things that were really just going on at that point. There was the Metropolitan, um, which was a monthly. Uh, John Boyd was the editor. And they had kind of, this was kind of on the very tail end in terms of where they were financially. And so I'd approached John Boyd and his culture editor, this Lynn Sanchez. Who uh, now is our culture editor. Who is now, yes, our... Well, Creative Services... Director of Creative Services. Yeah, so sure. All the creative talent. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I said, here's my story from Sokol, and I think, you know, there's, you know, it's important that there's other voices and a different you know, paper out there, you know, can I help out? Is there anything I can do? And this is pre-sound days? So this is pre-sound, oh, okay, yeah. Okay, and I okay. think that they were like, um, uh, yeah, we're busy. I don't know if we're going to tell your story and, you know, we're not sure, you know, what's going to be happening with us. And the other publication that was out infrequently at the time was called WAMO, which stood for W-H-A-M-O, which stood for the World Herald Attitude Monitoring Organization. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Francis Mendenhall, um, a dentist for the people, uh, had made that her project because she was so frustrated with the Republican kind of conservative bent of the, of the, of the World Herald at the time. Mm -hmm. And I went to Dr. Mendenhall and said, I see you're doing this. I think, you know, this is important. I want to do this. Uh, you know, I'm really busy. I don't have any money, you know, for this. Um, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Um, and so it was after that that I was, like, gotten onto this newspaper idea and was talking, had run into the, yeah. the staff at the Craytonian, and then the whole thing kind of clicked and came and then, together. Well, so then how, how and, like, why did it transition into the reader? So after about two years, um, the whole all-volunteer nonprofit thing was starting to wear a little thin. People were graduating from college, they were getting married, they were getting real jobs. So we were kind of starting to run a little bit on fumes. You know, the band was kind of fizzling out and breaking up. And I mean, there were probably 30 or 40 different contributors, you know, at the time. At that point, I really had the, you know, newspaper bug, you know, and um, uh, was starting to really think about, you know, maybe this is what I needed to do. And I got approached by um, uh, Kevin and Mark Simonson, who had just opened, um, or were in the process of opening, um, Sharky's Brewery, 
So it's one of the early microbrews uh, pubs in Omaha. It was on um, 76 and Cass. That's where the 24-hour fitness is now. And they had been doing quarterly, you know, publication called The Great Red Shark. And their publication was very literary. They brought Vonnegut to Lincoln. You know, they were Wahoo boys, went to school at the University of Nebraska. They brought Vonnegut. They brought Hunter S. They brought all these other authors huh. um, to Lincoln. And, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of really kind of fiction, creative writing, but still in that kind of DIY, you know, alternative vein. And they said, hey, we, we want to do a paper. Um, and I, we think we've got a sales guy, um, you know, like the Chicago Reader. And I really didn't know what the Chicago Reader was at that time. Um, you know, hey, well, you know, I can remember it. I think it would have been um, Thanksgiving of 93. And we, Sharky said it must have just opened, and we were at a show there. And I hadn't met these guys before, but they kind of knew who I was, and I knew who they were. And they said, hey, um, you know, we're interested in doing, starting this publication. Um, uh, and we've got a guy that had been selling radio that really wants to do this. And he had actually, um, his name's Dan, he had thought about coming and talking to me but he heard that we were nonprofit all volunteer, and he was totally not interested yeah, in that. Sure, <laughs> it's um, it's a little uh, uh, what do you call that um, foreshadowing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so um, the four of us started the reader, and um, I dropped out of UNO um, January of '94, and we got the first issue out in March '94. Yeah. And so uh, we started as a biweekly. Um, I pretty much had the production team there. I had a little bit of a sales thing going. Um, oh, by the way, I got to give a shout out to the Bemis Arts Center and Ree Shunlau because when we first put the idea together for Sound News and Arts, uh, we built this rate card, you know, and um, I can't remember who told me, but somebody said, well, you should go to the Bemis. They like creative things. So that was my very first appointment and I go in and I'm, sitting there talking to Reed. It's in this big, you know, cavernous space in, in the original kind of Bemis bag building. And she kind of hears me out and says, okay, I'll do a quarter page. How much? Uh, you know, I was like, uh, you know, whatever the price yeah. was. Then um, I was like, well, what do you want to put into it? And so she just grabs a piece of drawing paper. She says, what are the dimensions? I give her the dimensions. She kind of specs it out does this circle and writes Bemis Art Center, address, phone number. It says, here you go. And I'm like, oh man, this ad game is easy. <laughs> this has got to be, you know, that was the the last time I ever just walked in and sold an ad that easy yeah. and that quick. Yeah. Um, so uh, I dropped out of school. We actually kind of put an office um, in Mark Simonson's apartment at the Ambassador Mark had just gotten married. He had a, um, as well as had a new puppy. So um, it, it was kind of a lot going on there. Um, but uh, we had a computer. We could do the layout. And um, about, oh, a couple of months into it, a guy showed up and said, uh, you need a graphic designer. And we were like, yeah, we do. And so that was the fifth founder of the reader, um, a guy by the name of Evan Mills. And so he brought a lot of design experience. We were in that office. 
or we were in that apartment for a few months before they um, found room for us in the train car that was on the side of Sharky's. Um, so there was this, you know, there was a track that used to run where the um, bike trail is. The um, uh, so about that, you know, seventy six and Cass area. Mm-hmm. And um, so we took half the train car, which is pretty tight quarters, but we were right there next to the bar and then, you know, live music and yeah. all of that. And then um, they were renting that out to a roller skate um, or uh, roller skating rental, you know, take the your train ro- car. Take, yeah. Take your rollerblades, you know, out on the trail. Oh, <laughs> OK. Yeah. <laughs> Interpre- or lots of enterprising. Yeah. individuals <laughs> and so we had to find a new office and i at the time i was talking to the guy that um was running spaghetti works uh i think trying to sell him ads he might have bought some ads and um he owned the building that was the firehouse dinner theater or maybe managed it but had a you know kind of was in charge of it um and the firehouse dinner theater was really winding down and he had some offices upstairs and i think we traded ads is what we did we, we got the office space upstairs there um and we were there until this group came along and bought it called upstream brewing company and uh, converted it into the Upstream Brewing Company. Um, we were able to take a lot of the theatrical lights that they were using in the theater and take them over to Sokol Underground. So those are, I think, still the lights that are in the basement. Well, who knows now that it's yeah. the Admiral um, that were down there. And um, from there, uh, we found um, office space at 1618 Harney Street. And um, at this point, you know, we were starting to kind of get some size, you know. This was a couple of years or, or how long had this been? So we would have moved in, you know, that was kind of three offices by the time we get somewhere into 95. Oh, okay. From, you know, March 94 yeah. to kind of later in 95. Well, and, and I guess tell me a little bit about, I mean, now that you guys, you went from sound to the reader, like, did you feel like more like oh my god like i'm a real like newspaper guy like i I have a responsibility like i need i mean like i'm just kind of curious like what your headspace was as you did this and like you just i don't know like yeah what it was like yeah i feel like maybe it's during sound news and arts i was spending more time kind of trying to organize the creative talent that kind of put everything in i was selling the ads i was you know when the uh, overseeing production um though ken did all the production we still needed to paste that up you right. know we still needed to get that to the printer get the printer paid and then you know this truck would show up with a pallet of newspapers and you know drop it in the garage of a house i was sharing with three other roommates that must have been wild we'd also, get, a, just keg, to we'd see get like... a keg of beer and you know hey everybody that wants to go run and deliver newspapers for us um can come back and you know free beer okay it's pretty much you know how it worked so after that though it really was coming down to you know people started telling us things and um uh, some real journalists, you know, started poking their heads in. Um, one was Jason Oslander, who was a friend of mine uh, in high school, um, Central High grad, um, incredible journalist. Um, you know, was at the Arizona Daily Star, was uh, went into TV, was top investigative reporter, 
uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I haven't talked to him in a few years, but he was in New York. Um, last I talked to him, um, and I think he was in journalism school at the time. Yeah. Uh, but came from a journalism family and, you know, spent that summer showing me, you know, what journalism really, really? was. Yeah. Yeah, because... That was my first experience. And, I, and it's something I wanted to do. You know, I, I, my motivation has always been those stories that don't get covered and, yeah. you know, get blown off really quick. Hey, Chris here. I uh, just want to let you know, at this point in the podcast, John kind of gave me the hurry up signal. So there's quite a lot of history that uh, we had to speed through, um, or rather, I had to just sort of stammer through. So just want to let you know that, uh, yeah, that's what happened. Anyway, let's get back to it. Okay, well, so I guess just to like really speed it up. So decades go by, you know, you in the mid to late 2000s, the housing market crashes. You guys establish a digital first agency where ads and print media just goes to the floor and you have to all of a sudden learn how to run websites and learn what a Google My Business means and do all these things and all that. And, you know, even now, years later, a pandemic happens and, you know, like it seems like everything has changed a lot around here you can correct me if i'm wrong but you know like you're still here and that's one of the things i was going to ask about is because you talk about like oh i never wanted to be in omaha um always wanted to go somewhere else but you're still in omaha now i'm curious like what do you feel like like why keep doing it after all this time i mean it takes a lot of skill to run something like this when you know, I'm sure like a lot of people would be like, oh, yeah, that could, that would just get squashed, you know, or that get bought out or that would he wants to go and do something else. Like, I mean, it's like, why stay in Omaha this whole time? Why keep doing it? I think there's a couple of things. Um, I mean, part of it is because I didn't come up through a traditional journalism background. There's a lot of things that I just didn't know any better on, which was, you know, a curse in a lot of ways, um, but also a blessing in a lot of ways. Um, you know, so being able to respond to change was a lot easier because I didn't have any preconceived notions that things had to be this way, right? Which is something that I think most news organizations are really struggling with that change, right? Um, and so uh, it was, um, you know, why, why stay here, still here? You know, because I'd, I'd left the reader for about a year before I started a, um, another paper is a whole nother long twisted story um i think it's the more you know the more you realize how much is here and how much hasn't been told and you really start seeing the potential of what it could be because you know i thought i knew a lot at that time when i started right like you know you think you're in your early 20s and you know you've got it all figured out but as I've become way more aware of privilege and power and, you know, how much of that I get from both my background and from, you know, running a local media, you start understanding that places aren't that different. And I knew that from my time, you know, growing up traveling and that it's not, it, it's how deep and how thoroughly you can kind of weave that story and try and create meaningful change that's going to be the most rewarding and i can do that here as well as anywhere else if not better i mean that is the one thing you can say about a, a 
a town the size of Omaha is that um, while there is a lot that's already been here, there's definitely room for more. And um, there's an openness and a receptiveness, and you don't have to go too many steps to get to who you need to get to. Now, it's tough getting past that stage. You know, when we stepped into alternative news weeklies, they were a pretty well-established model around the country, and there were some people who originally were from Omaha and Nebraska who really helped us out so that we could get to I wasn't working a full-time other job, you know, I could uh, pay myself and, you know, then pay myself legitimately and then start paying other people and still working on trying to get them paid legitimately. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, I couldn't see it doing it anywhere else. And this place is so rich in such a cross-section of stories and so rich in a cross-section of challenges and opportunities um, that I think we can make some real change happen here. Um, and I want to be a part of it. I guess I'm also curious as a follow-up to that, like what your optimism level is about the future of journalism and the future of journalism in Omaha. So, um, you know, more than anything ever before, yeah, the power is in the hands of the community. And um, I think there are still, and the public at large, right? And I think even as a society, we're grappling with that power, even as that kind of gets manipulated with algorithms and our attentions, you know, kind of steered and, and you know, um, spurred and, and um, monetized and commoditized. Um, so I think there's an overall digital information maturity that I'm confident will happen, maybe not as quick as it needs to, but eventually, I mean, we seem as humans to be able to adapt, which also gives me uh, some faith in the future. And um, the optimism springs from one, still being here, to finding a revenue model that works, that has given us a lot of opportunity to explore different things, to be a part of starting things like noise, to be a part of, you know, work helping things, you know, like with the Omaha Star, um, to be able to, um, you know, work uh, collaboratively in a shared spirit with other media like Mundo Latino. That's so different from the old model of, you know, we're all competitors and I don't win unless you lose this fracturing is going to continue and kind of settle out. And so uh, it's a real opportunity for voices that haven't been heard, which we have tried to make our kind of standard. Um, and, you know, I don't have the answers to any of that, except I'm trying to kind of stumble along with the rest of the profession, really, you know, towards it. And, um, and, and to be as helpful as I can on all fronts, because that seems to kind of go around. And, you know, we're in a great position to be able to do that. Last question. After 27 years in journalism, do you feel like, do you still believe in, like, change and that things can change? Or Oh, this town's so different than when we started 27 really? years ago. If you would have asked any of us 27 years ago that what Omaha would look like now, you know, that the rating room would exist, that they would buy the Admiral, that the slowdown would exist, that the Blue Barn would have this facility. I mean, no, right? Yeah. There is no chance that things like Benson First Friday that exist, that you'd even want to go to Benson and have a, you know, hang out on a, heck no. Yeah. You know, like Blackstone, what? You yeah. know, there's none of that stuff, you know, and 
there's so much culture still under the surface here that doesn't get recognized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, it's hard to see when you're in the moment, but when you start looking back over time and, you know, just being able to work with talent like yours and to be able to see how you approach these topics and take them and bring, you know, mics to the office and soundboards and <laughs> yeah, other right. things like that, right? True. We technically could have done that. I mean, we had a band in the basement of our office for a long time when yeah. we were over on 16th and Hardy, but we never really thought about it, you know? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't as easy. podcast back then either. It had exactly. to be, you know, on something called FM radio or whatever, but... Okay, well, I know you got to go. So is there any last thoughts that you want to share with the listeners um, about, you know, the reader, about membership, anything like that? You'd hey, like to from say? day one, you've made this possible. If nobody was picking up those papers, uh, and today if nobody picked up those papers, then, you know, we would not, um, we wouldn't have an audience. We wouldn't have a, a reason to be here. We wouldn't have, um, you know, the support that we do get. And so as we continue on this journey and find new ways, uh, we so appreciate this next level of support. Uh, you know, putting some putting some coin into it. Um, but you know, with that, we also want to be a part of um, how you see media evolving and what role you can have because you have more of the power than you ever had. And and uh, with that comes a lot of responsibility. And we want to help you with that. So thank you for your support. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reader Radio. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to John Heaston for sitting down with me and talking through this. Uh, I know he really didn't want to do it, but there was so much history that I didn't even know about uh, him and the reader, and I hope you guys found it as interesting as I did. Uh, this podcast was edited by me. Uh, music is by uh, John Ricks. You can find him on uh, Bandcamp at P0H underscore K. Uh, the intro to the podcast is by me and him. Um, and yeah, I think that's about it. So if you uh, want to become a member, we would greatly appreciate it. You can do that at thereader.com. But until next time, um, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>